As a church, one of our great commitments is to the word because it is God's word that we value it. And as a church, God has blessed us, uh, not only with our regular teaching team, but with others who throughout the years have come, who have uh, been uh, capable, have been gifted uh, teachers, who uh, pastors, chaplains, others. Uh, and among them, uh, the Lord provided for us as a church a few years ago is uh, our friend Tim Coyle. Uh, I'm here introducing him now because through the pandemic, uh, many of you don't know who he is. Uh, and so it could be a little confusing if he just stood up and started preaching. Uh, and you're wondering, he's not on our, our list of things, uh, of, of ministers. Uh, but many of you also do know Tim. Uh, Tim is a, an ordained minister in the Grace Brethren Church. I had pastored for over 20 years uh, in Delaware. Uh, and then uh, moving from his, the church that he had planted, he had spent the, the next uh, several years uh, in one of our sister churches, uh, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church in Newark, Delaware, where he uh, at times uh, would fill the pulpit and, and share in the ministry there, taught uh, regularly, uh, and uh, walked with uh, the leaders and the, uh, uh, the pastor uh, of that church. Uh, he and Mary moved here uh, a few years ago after visiting regularly, and Tim has preached before, uh, but it's been a while, and so Tim, I invite you now to share God's word with us. Thank you, Dennis. Normally when I stand before this pulpit, whether to lead in prayer or to preach, I don't extend a greeting because I'm not here on my own behalf. I'm here to lead us to the Lord. But this Sunday is a little different. After all of us being apart for a year due to COVID-19 restrictions, and then with Mary and myself only being back at Grace Covenant in person for about a month, most of you I have not seen for a very, very long time. So this morning I do say good morning. It's good to see all of you and good to be here with you. The old adage is very true, isn't it? that sometimes we don't realize how much something means to us until we don't have it. And I'm sure that the time that we've been apart due to COVID-19 has made us all appreciate being able to worship together on Sunday mornings like this much more. So, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> no doubt you would agree with me when I say that we find in the book of John, the Gospel of John, probably the best-known scripture in the entire Bible. Now, by that, I don't mean that everyone would be able to quote it or, or uh, might even be able to identify it, but they know the scripture reference, which is John 3.16. For instance, for those of you that are football fans, more likely than not, the next football game you watch, at some point in the game, whether there will be an extra point that's about to be kicked or a field goal attempt, when the camera pans to the goalpost, we will see rising from the crowd behind the goalpost a large white sign that simply has on it John 3.16. 
So almost everybody knows of John 3.16. And it's no wonder that so many in the church love this verse as much as it does, as, as they do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And that one verse is encapsulated the gospel message. What a wonderful thing. But I would also suggest that in the gospel of John, we find what is one of the most quoted verses, certainly in the top five of the most quoted verses in the entire Bible. Now, it's not the whole verse that's quoted, but a portion of it. And that portion is found in Roman in John 8.32, when Jesus said, And you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Or depending upon the version you're reading, the truth will set you free. Now usually, I wouldn't be a bit surprised that most people who utter those words don't even realize that they come from the Bible. But indeed they do. And usually it's quoted in a political context. And that's understandable because when we think of the word freedom, normally we think of political freedom. And we here in America love freedom. Do you know that we live in the only country in the history of the world that was ever based on a concept? And that concept was freedom. The Declaration of Independence proclaims it. Our Constitution was written not to empower government, but to limit its power with separation of power and division of power. And the Bill of Rights were added to ensure our liberties, our freedoms. But is that the sense in which Jesus was speaking of liberty and freedom when he first uttered these words? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, let me add that those that do use this and think of it in a political sense are not incorrect, because underlying these words is a principle. There has always been a close relationship between truth and freedom. And unless you are a student of mid 20th century European history, we probably do not realize the extent that Radio Free Europe played in the downfall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Iron Curtain. As the truth was beamed into the Eastern Bloc countries day and night, and people listened, even at peril, because it was prohibited in these countries for people to listen to Radio Free Europe. They began to hear the truth of the world outside of where they lived and even the, the truth within their own country. And then finally, in the early 1990s, enough people stood up and demanded freedom and the Iron Curtain came down. There was that truth that led to freedom. And think even in the colonial days of our own nation, George Washington, our commander-in-chief during the War for Independence, and then our first president. Do you all know how he died? 
The year was 1799. It was the month of December. George Washington had been out on his property overseeing some work that needed to be done. Was not feeling well when he left and when he came back he felt even worse and became very, very sick. And they called for the doctor and then another doctor and he was bled a total of four times because it was believed that disease was caused by an imbalance of fluids within the body. And so to correct that imbalance, people would be bled. And George Washington died as a result of that treatment. Years later, it was discovered that most diseases are caused by microbes, germs, and viruses too small for the human eye to see, but nonetheless powerful enough to be devastating on the human body. But with that knowledge, with a true medical understanding, many people would be set free from the suffering and even the fatalities of medical misinformation. And there's so many, many other applications of how the truth sets us free. But what was the truth that Jesus was speaking of in John chapter 8? Read with me, please, as, as I read from John chapter 8, verses 26 through 36. And you listen to see if Jesus is speaking here in a political context or not. I have much to say about, about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. May God bless this reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we do indeed thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you for the richness of this concept of freedom. And we pray, Father, that you would give us understanding of what Jesus is saying here. We pray that you would quiet our hearts and open our minds. And speak to us now through your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you think? Is, just, is Jesus speaking of political freedom here? 
There's no indication that he is, is there? Rather, Jesus is speaking of spiritual freedom. So in this passage, what we want to determine this morning is exactly what does Jesus mean here by spiritual freedom. Secondly, why is it important? And then third, we want to look at how this principle that Jesus is presenting is so perfectly demonstrated elsewhere in Scripture, in fact, in the life of the Apostle Paul. So as we consider what Jesus was really saying here, the house is divided. Not all commentators agree. And I have to admit, there are some men who have written commentaries on the Gospel of John that I would rarely disagree with, but I disagree with their interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. But then there are others with whom I do agree. So, there are two uh, primary understandings of what Jesus means here when he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The first one is this, that Jesus is speaking of coming to Christ, of coming to salvation, of being saved. And so they would look at it this way. When Jesus, Jesus is saying to them, you will know the truth, And the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free from the penalty of sin. The truth will set you free from condemnation of sin. And of spending an eternity apart from God. God has indeed set you free. But there's one problem with that understanding of what Jesus is saying here. Because we see in verse 30 that as Jesus was speaking, many believed in him. So if somebody has already believed in Jesus, we don't need to tell them to get saved. Now the response would be, well, consider John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And then the next day, he had crossed the Sea of Galilee... And the crowds came and found him, looking for more bread. And Jesus says to them, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. And then John chapter 6 tells us that at that point, with this saying that is hard to understand, many of his disciples turned from him and walked with him no longer. And so these commentators would say, to make sure that that doesn't happen with these who had just believed in Jesus, Jesus says, here's how you really get saved. You abide in my word. That is, you take it, you listen to it, you internalize it and believe it. And you come to know the truth that I am saying. And in that truth, you will be set free. Now, there's a second school of thought that takes literally what Jesus said, what John wrote in verse 30, that many believed in him as they heard what he was saying. 
And that the freedom that Jesus is talking about here is not freedom from the penalty of sin, but rather freedom from the power of sin. What Jesus is speaking of here is not that initial stage of salvation, which we call justification. And that's when we talk about salvation, that's what we are usually talking about, isn't it? But that's not the, the fullness of our salvation. That's only the first stage. That is then followed by sanctification. You see, the Bible uses the term saved in the past tense. You were saved. That refers to our coming to Christ, to our justification. But the Bible also uses the term saved in the present tense. You are being saved. Now, that doesn't mean you're not already saved, but it's looking to the second stage of salvation, which is sanctification, which is a process that goes on through the duration of this life on earth in every believer. We are continually being made more and more like the person of Christ. We are more and more being set free from the power of sin. So you see, in justification, we're set free from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we are being set free from the power of sin. And there's a third and final stage to our salvation, and that is what the Bible calls glorification. We will be saved in the future tense in a way we have not been saved yet. And that's when we stand before God in heaven and we are freed from the very presence of sin sin within us and sin around us we are made perfect and that too is a work of grace that is a part of our salvation that God will accomplish now that third stage is beyond the scope of what we're, what we're looking at here this morning so which is it is Jesus speaking of our justification in this passage Or is he speaking of our sanctification? Well, fortunately, the context will help us to determine the answer to that question. So let's let's look at what Jesus continued to say after he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the key rests with the very next word, identifying who the they is in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus then answered them. The them in the verse 34 is the same as the they in verse 33. Now with those who came to believe in Jesus as he was speaking, now we have two groups of people that we are especially interested in. In this large crowd that surrounded Jesus as he was speaking, it was a mixed multitude. There were those who already believed in Jesus and came back to hear more. There were those who were questioning who Jesus was and still needed to make a decision. And then there were the religious leaders and those who still followed them who were dead set against Jesus. And we're dogging him everywhere he went. 
We find already back in chapter 5 that the the religious leaders, in particular the scribes and the Pharisees, had moved from wanting to seize Jesus to wanting to kill Jesus. And if they couldn't kill him, they could at least try to interrupt everything that he said every time that he spoke. They would contradict everything that he said, as we see right here in this passage. So the question is, which group is more likely to be saying, we are offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Does this sound like the religious leaders, or does it sound like those who had just believed in Jesus? And then Jesus answered them by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now notice the next verse. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Does that sound like those who just believed in Jesus? Or does it sound like the religious leaders that we know were already trying to kill him? It's certainly that latter group, isn't it? So when Jesus says, you are truly, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. He's speaking to those who had just believed in him to those who were already saved. And therefore, he's talking about their sanctification. So, in the second place, why is it important for us to understand this and to understand this distinction? Here's why. Jesus is presenting to us a principle that gets to the very heart of how we grow as Christians. And so what Jesus is saying to you and me, just as he said to those who had believed in him in his own day, if you abide in my word, that means if you listen to what I say. And in our case, it's not the spoken word of God, it's the written word of God that we have right here in this book. If you abide in my word, if you read it, if you internalize it, if you think about it, if you mull it over, if you begin to seek to practice it in your own life, you're going to come to a deeper understanding of what it says. And as you understand it, you'll grow spiritually. The Holy Spirit will do a work in your life using the Word of God that you've taken into your own heart. This is how the process of sanctification takes place. Now, this is not the only place in the Gospel of John that we find this concept described. If you think back to around Easter, Camper preached a message from John chapter 13. That's a chapter that takes place on the night of the Last Supper. And after the supper, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And you might remember that he came to the Apostle Peter And Peter said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, 
If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter then said, well, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my, my head and my hands. In other words, wash me entirely so I can get more of you. And Jesus said, no, Peter. A person who is bathed does not need to bathe again, for he is already clean. But your feet need to be washed. And where that comes from is in the Middle East, in the first century, the standard wear was often told sandals. So you would get a bath, get dressed, go out about your daily business, and would walk on dirty, dusty streets. No asphalt back then, no paved roads, no cement, just dirty, dusty roads. And so when you would return home, you didn't need to have a bath all over again, but you did need to have your feet washed. And so Jesus is saying there in the same way that when we are already Christians and we sin, we don't need to get saved all over again but we need to deal with the sin that we've picked up on a day-by-day basis. And that's really what John would later address in his first epistle. In verse 1-9, when he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is speaking to believers there. And he's saying the same thing. That when we confess our sins... He forgives us our sins and cleanses us. So through this process, this is how we grow in our sanctification. Now, this is so well illustrated for us in the life of the Apostle Paul. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, in this chapter, we read in verse 2 that there was a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, we don't know. Only God knows. But Paul was given, and this, by the way, is is the Apostle Paul. He's referring to himself in this way, but later in the chapter, we're He clarifies that he's speaking of himself. But in verse 7, when he was taken up into heaven, he was given knowledge that surpassed greatness. So incredibly rich that a thorn was given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him, and to keep him from being too elated. Now, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was that Paul had with certainty. Uh, this 14 years, we know when, when Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, we can date that, we can go back 14 years, and it puts us in a period of time uh, that we're not told about Paul's life. It's after he left Jerusalem, It's before he got to Antioch and before he began his three missionary journeys. So we're not sure what exactly this thorn in the flesh might be. 
We know, though, that from the book of Galatians that Paul had a very serious vision problem. So much so that Paul didn't write his own epistles. He had what's called an amanuensis. That's like a secretary, someone to whom he dictated his epistles and wrote them. And in Galatians, Paul said, Paul reminds them of when he first came to them. And he said, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me if you would have been able to. And then at the conclusion of the epistle, he said, you see, I write this in my own hand. He, he signed the epistle in his own hand in large letters because he had this vision problem. Now, you can imagine, you, you know what it would be like to have, if, especially if you're a gardener, you grow roses and you get a thorn in your finger. You feel that thing every time you move that finger and it's painful. And this vision problem would, would have been with Paul all of his life. I mean, how can you escape it in your waking hours? It's, it affects how you see. It affects what you do. And we, we read here that Paul pleaded with the Lord about this. Paul begged God. He didn't just ask God three times to take this away. He pled with him. He begged him. It's interesting. This is the normal word for exhortation. So when we use this word in relationship to one another, we exhort one another, but we don't exhort God. When this word is used with reference to coming before God, it is in a sense of pleading, in a sense of begging for something that God would do. And then in the next verse, God responds to Paul. And he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is an amazing thing. We look up to the Apostle Paul. We hold him in high esteem and for good reason. This one man wrote 13 of the epistles that we have in our Bible. He wrote, which is undoubtedly the greatest treatise in the book of Romans on salvation and what the gospel really is. And yet, do you see, do you catch what we see here in this passage? We see Paul experiencing the process of sanctification. We, saw, we see Paul growing in his faith. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then we see Paul going from pleading to proclaiming, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now what changed? Did Paul remove the thorn from Paul's flesh? No. Did Paul's circumstances in any other way change? No. What changed 
was Paul's understanding of a spiritual truth. Now, there's no doubt that Paul un- well understood the gospel, the, the principle of grace already. The grace is God's unmerited favor. That God, the grace is what God does for us that we do not deserve and can never repay. But it would seem that what Paul did not understand was that God's grace was sufficient for him even in the midst of having to deal with this thorn in the flesh. And look at the transformation right before our eyes in an instant. You see, Paul went through the process that Jesus describes in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, Paul listened to what God spoke to him from heaven. He accepted it. He internalized it. He came to understand its truth. And in that moment, he grew spiritually to the point where he could then say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, you may be experiencing suffering of some kind as we are gathered together here this morning. You may have a physical problem, as Paul did. You may be suffering the loss of a loved one. You may be suffering in some other way. Now, don't expect the heavens to open up and for God to speak to you from heaven. The reason is because he doesn't need to. Everything that is in this book is here for you and for me. And that includes verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient for you in whatever you might be dealing with this morning or will will deal with in the days to come. You too can experience the freedom that comes from whatever we're struggling with because God's grace is sufficient for you. And then, as Paul said, you can say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, Paul came to understand that If it weren't for the thorn in the flesh, he would never have the opportunity to realize the greatness of God's grace that is working within him. And he came to that understanding because of that he could rejoice and give praise to God and find his life is even better as a result of having that thorn in the flesh. What a tremendous transformation. What a tremendous step in growth in sanctification. And we see it even in the life of one like the Apostle Paul right here before us. But this is not true only of times of suffering. This is true every time we come to God's word, read it, and see something there that we did not see before, and come to understand it, accept it, and come to its truth. And the truth sets us free. It sets us free from the power of sin, 
that we might live a life pleasing to God. This is God, what God is offering you. This is what God reveals to us. When Jesus said the words, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will know the truth. You will truly be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand in awe at the wonder of your word. Its richness, the way it speaks to us, the way it addresses every need that we have. And for this, Father, we give you thanks and praise. Father, help us to come before you through your word, always seeking to abide in it, to understand it, to realize its truth, that we might grow in the salvation that you have given to us. For, we, for these things, we give you thanks and praise in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.